0: Everyone to the Jack's Way Collective. If you want to go by the the main feed of core episodes, that uh, would probably make this episode 20 minus the Let's Read series. Regardless, I know it's been a while. I believe the last time I released an episode was the 31st of May, which is kind of hard to believe. But uh, I'm back. Quarantine has, of course, changed a lot of things. Um, one of them, of course, being my podcasting schedule, but here we are. I have had this amazing opportunity to return to the mic and uh, bring you guys a really cool episode I think you're going to really like. So we've all gotten up to some interesting things during quarantine, I'm sure. Um, for me, I had this experience a few months ago, I guess it would have been sometime in August, where I stumbled upon this YouTube video called Stalin's Final Speech 1952, and I decided to click on it. And it turns out it was this uh, full video of Joseph Stalin's final public speech delivered at the Congress of the Communist Party of the USSR on the 14th of October in 1952. And there was something about the video that was very striking to me, the way that I was watching Joseph Stalin speak. And also it was subtitled so you could hear and also understand what he's actually communicating. And it was just a fascinating video. And I ended up Exploring the Uploader's YouTube channel. And it turns out he's actually a professor of Russian history. And his name is Scott Palmer. And he released this 24-episode-long series on the history of Imperial Russia. And what it is is an audio recording of his university lectures, as if you are in the class, coupled with uh, slideshow imagery um, to kind of supplement the, the audio material. And there's 24 episodes of these, and I, beginning to end, watched every single one, and it was as if I had taken the university course on the history of Imperial Russia. And absolutely fascinating. Completely, um, you know, changed the way that I look at Russia. I learned so much. And, I, you know, I think as moderns, we often think of Russian history from... You know, let's say the turn of the 20th century or the the post Russian revolution or things like that. And it was really amazing to actually learn about the history of Russia from far, far before the Russian revolution and, you know, the the turn of the 20th century. And it was just amazing. I I won't talk too much about the actual lecture series. I'll post it in the links uh, for this podcast, but I definitely want to share my experience reaching out to the professor. I'm like, wow, I can't believe that there is a professor out there willing to take the time to produce this uh, kind of high-quality educational content and put it online for free for people uh, like me in another country, really just looking to to learn at my own pace at home. It was just really fascinating, and I was also really compelled by the way that Professor Palmer lectured. Um, he's a true dramatist. He tells these amazing stories. He's a... Com- completely engaging speaker. Um, his knowledge of Russia, Russian history, Russian context is awe-inspiring, truly. And you know, when you sit into these in these lectures, even though it's a very low production value audio um, YouTube course, it really does feel as if you're in the classroom. And so I decided to send Professor Palmer an email and ask him if he would be interested in having a conversation with me on the podcast. And you know, sure enough, he was uh, super keen. He was very interested in this. So, uh, we had an initial chat and then uh, I guess it was last week we decided to actually sit down and have a podcast. Um, the podcast was amazing. We talked of course about the history of Imperial Russia. Uh, we had some great discussions about Russian literature, uh, and just even the practice of speaking Russian. Uh, professor Palmer is also, um, a scholar on the history of aviation culture uh, history of technology, history of video games. Um, so we touched on a few of these topics, uh, also hit on things like the Soviet Union. We talked about Joseph Stalin and what it means to be considered a great, quote unquote, uh, great man in history. And then the final thing we chatted about, which I'll also mention here, is Professor Palmer's project called the Spoke Network, which is an online platform for educational material for scholars and academics to upload their course content on this kind of centralized platform for people to learn. Very similar to the YouTube experience that I had. Instead, uh, this would also include things like course materials, quizzes, uh, links to different readings, self-assessments, things like that. And, um, you know, Professor Palmer is really trying to build something very interesting here, which is a kind of virtual, remote, online learning experience that mimics being in the university classroom without any... Cost. He's actually registered as a 501c charity now in the United States, and the Spoken Network is completely under that umbrella. And it's just really cool. Uh, you know, professors, uh, including himself, are going to be uploading more and more content on this platform. And you know, if you if you take any enjoyment out of, let's say, the Russian Imperial History course, definitely check out the Spoken Network as well because that's going to be a hub. For all of Professor Palmer's future content, Uh, he's been kind enough to share with me his first lecture on the history of aviation uh, culture, and it was just absolutely fascinating as well. So I'm excited that I have even more content in the pipeline. So I won't ramble too much longer. I just want to share that it was a great conversation. It's difficult to edit because uh, everything that we talked about was great. So this is a complete marathon, Um, but. You know, I, I think everyone's going to enjoy it. Sit back for a few hours and just listen to a proper, true, authentic, and genuine, um, historian talk about, talk about his practice, talk about, um, you know, Russian imperial history, flight culture, everything like that. It's completely compelling. Uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. And I, I'm just so, so thankful that Professor Palmer has agreed to join me, uh, for a conversation like this. So thank you as always for listening to the Jack Bay Collective. Uh, Please enjoy this incredible interview with Professor Palmer. Thank you so much for, for joining me, Professor Palmer. It's such a pleasure. I'm very happy to be here and thanks so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. I, I have to start with this question. What what was it for you that drew you to Russian history uh, initially?
1: Well, initially, like a lot of folks uh, who end up as Russian historians or Russian political scientists or in, in general the Russian studies area, I, I was drawn to the literature uh, and to the art. Uh, and as is also true for a lot of academics and teachers, I had an exceptional undergraduate experience um, at the University of Kansas. I had a, a couple of faculty members whose classes were so engaging, were, were so fascinating that I, I got drawn into it, uh, both the literature and the culture. Um, so I ended up, I was ended up being a double major as an undergraduate in history and Slavic languages and literatures. Back at the back at the time, you had to take a foreign language as an undergraduate at KU, and I decided if I had to take something, it was going to be something odd. As opposed to, you know, French or German or Spanish, and so I I came down to either Russian, Swahili. Uh, Mandarin Chinese or Arabic. <laughs> now, in in, in oh. retrospect, I probably didn't choose the right one. Both Arabic <laughs> and and Mandarin would have probably made me a wealthy guy. But I was interested. You know, at the time, this would have been the, the mid to late 1980s. You had Petestroika and Glasnost and Gorbachev, and and things were changing. It was an incredibly tumultuous time, <laughs> like now. Um, and and Russia seemed. I mean, things seemed to be moving after sort of a glacial period of, of stagnation. And so it was an exciting and interesting time. I, I had fantastic instructors, had to take the language, read at one point uh, sort of presumptively uh, Brothers Karamazov. Uh, I, I can't remember if it was between, I think it was the, the spring semester of my, of my freshman year. And decided just, I was—I didn't understand any of it. I thought I did. Uh, That—that's what sort of began this you know, lifelong love affair uh, with the country, its people, and its culture.
0: Very interesting. I—I f- I first just want to just share with the audience that we did have an initial chat uh, a couple weeks ago, just to say hello, and um, I was able to bring out my kind of big chunky copy of the Brothers Karamazov as well, and you know, it was just really cool to be able to bond over that with someone else. Where. You know, I walk around as a as a mid twenty year old, and you know, no one is gonna is gonna like be like, "Oh yeah, bro, like let's get together and talk about the brothers." <laughs> well, actually, so, that,
1: that, it's funny that you mention that you know, because it, it occurred it just occurred to me that one of the things that you can do I'm not I'm not on social media,
0: right, right.
1: Um, but you mentioned that you know why would a twenty year old be walking around with a you know four hundred five hundred page book? You know, in an age when everything is, is is kept down to 144 characters in a tweet.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <right. laughs>
1: what, what, what would what would be the tweet that describes all of Brothers Karamazov in 144 characters? <laughs> oh, it's kind of it. hard. I mean, I'm sure <laughs> you can condense everything into a single sentence. I suppose. <laughs> you know, it, it does. You know, Russian literature does sort of lend itself to not that kind of kind of a communications approach.
0: Absolutely. And I think, I think that's part of why I love it. Um, I I, I think specifically Dostoevsky is the one who, who just speaks to me so much because he has these characters who just go off on these pages and pages of monologue and um, they're, they're raving and they're waxing philosophically and they're, they're impassioned and everything like that. And it's just, you feel like you're almost being swept along when you're, you're reading some of these books. And so that, that was really, really cool to be able to share that. With someone else Oh, okay so that was great well
1: yeah they they, they the, the russian novels really can be entirely immersive experiences um and as someone who's a historian by training and, and always sort of had a historical mindset when i was reading these works as an undergraduate and even later on you know, read them in graduate school or just read them for pleasure i, I want to link everything back to the, to the history and the times in which they were being written Why is Dostoevsky talking about this? Why is Tolstoy addressing his topic in a certain way? What does Chekhov's Cherry Orchard, you know, how did it speak to Russians then? You know, we understand that as works of literature, they speak to people across time and place. They had a particular resonance for contemporaries in a way that, you know, they, they don't quite resonate with us now unless you understand a little bit more about the history, but even that only gets us part of the way there.
0: Right. Yeah, And, and that's, I, that's think, I
1: think, the literature there, the literary and the cultural artifacts that have been left over. And it's not just Russia. It's, it's any culture. It's it's any civilization. But those literary and those cultural artifacts are so important, you know, to trying to understand the time and the mindset and the belief systems of people who've gone before us. That's that's what I find so fascinating about it.
0: You definitely get to experience that, especially as a scholar of Russian history. And, you know, part of what this course for me has done um, is fill in a little bit of those gaps for me and kind of grounding some of these authors in their historical context. And, you know, of course, there's so many more gaps for me to fill in my own mind, but it, it really does make me able to look back on, you know, where is Alyosha walking around? What is the, What does the town really look like? And I feel like I have a better idea of that. Or, you know, someone like uh, Raskolnikov from Crime and Punishment, and he's this, like, abjectly poor person living under a staircase and he's a kind of uh, uh, impassioned student. And it, when you were talking about, you know, the, the student uh, populace living in uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg, and, you know, they're all really smart. They're, they're getting educated, but they're also impassioned because they don't have a very good economic situation. And I just, I really understood Raskolnikov even more as well. And I know, but maybe that's why I've really been drawn to this course as well as because you can ground so much more. It makes so much sense when you read about these historical, um, works or historical figures and you know where they're coming from. Well,
1: I was, I was, I was thrilled to hear from you. I, I, it was the, the, the course was sort of a, I don't want to say it was a one-off. Um, I had, in fact, I, I think I may have mentioned this to you when we had, had our initial introductory conversation. That was, if I recall, only the second time I had I taught that specific version of Imperial. I mean, I've, I've been teaching Imperial Russian history since the, the late 90s when I'm, I had my first academic appointment. And I, I taught it quite frequently um, and then decided yeah, I wanted to completely redo the course, change the way I was interpreting it. it, changed sort of the narrative framework and the narrative arc of the course. And that was only the second time I've taught it. And, and it's, it's the last time. I haven't taught it since then. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, because of you know other other responsibilities, administrative responsibilities, changes that took place in my uh, career, and, and and you know uh, and domestic you know, domestic life, moving and things like that. So I haven't had a chance to go back and revisit it. Um, and although I've I've had, I, so if I, I threw the lectures up, um, the production value wasn't up to my standards. Uh, to be honest with you. Um, you you can hear me when I'm lecturing and I start to go over to the microphone like, and then I come back to the microphone because when i when I lecture, I pace, I like to walk around the classroom a lot, and I wasn't wearing a lavalier or anything like that but the the response has been overwhelmingly positive i was I just sort of threw them up there, patched them together on iMovie, tried to throw in a few extra things, and then just frankly haven't paid much attention to. them. <laughs> Um, you know, from time to time I would go and I would check and say, oh, well, okay, I mean, I've got 400 views. Well, that's nice. And the Nazis are yelling at me for being a, a communist. And the communists are yelling at me for not, you know, loving Russia enough. And, <laughs> <laughs> what yeah, yeah, at some point, you just so want it begins. To, yeah, and, and so it begins. But it's, you know, the, the folks who have had, you know, I think with the situation that's going on now and has been going on, you know, sort of internally for the last seven or eight months, I've had more folks emailing me saying, "Hey, you know, thanks for posting these. They're really interesting, and I learned a lot." And of, of course, as someone who's uh, in education, that's that's all I can hope for. That's right. so the best I can hope for is for folks to sort of get something out of these classes, um, you know, and maybe do something more with them, uh, you know, in the in the future. But it's I was I was thrilled to hear from you, and I'm thrilled to hear from anybody, um, particularly the folks who've enjoyed the classes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah it's a bit easier as opposed
1: to me yelling and screaming at you, you no know, <laughs> some of the haters can be pretty ridiculous <laughs> like okay you, you look look buddy i mean go mm. ahead and you throw up your 24 lectures on russian history and let me critique them <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, that's
0: good that's funny um i i i do want to ask you have these moments in um the lectures where you're trying to describe um a, a Russian concept or a Russian um, institution, and you'll, you know, <laughs> you'll be lecturing in, you know, your your native tongue, and all of a sudden you just you whip out some incredibly fluent Russian word, and I have to ask, like, are you completely? Well, uh, how is your Russian? I,
1: my Russian, I mean, in general, I would say I can speak Russian, you know, sort of normally. Am I native fluent? Oh heavens, no. I speak with an accent. And, frankly, uh, uh, my fluency was probably better, you know, 15, 20 years ago, right after I had spent a year, you know, a year and a half living in, uh, in Moscow, right? Because right. it's, it's, it's kind of like riding a bicycle. You don't – once you attain a certain level of fluency, you have it for your lifetime. Mm-hmm. But if you don't use it, you're not quite as you're, – you're rusty, and so to be perfectly honest, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm far more rusty than I wish I was. Right. Um, but I do have one of my favorite stories. Um, this was back when I was, I was in Moscow on my, on my, I was doing my research, uh, archival research that led to the uh, dissertation, finally the book. This would have been about ninety ninety four, 94, spring of 95, something like that. And I'm walking down a street, I'm walking down, uh, uh, the, it was in the Autobot on, uh, 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 in uh, in Moscow, and a news reporter just pulls me aside, and I'm it was, it's it's early spring, so early spring is February, which means it's winter. So <laughs> okay. right, I'm all bundled up, you know, and I've got my my raggy coat on, and I'm trying to look the part. Uh, this was back during the major uh, economic crisis for the Russians; things were really rough. And she pulls me aside, and she starts asking me a question. I don't even remember what the question was at this point. Something to do with contemporary Russian developments and politics and that sort of thing. And so I. I answered the question. And she was a bit startled, and we got done, and, and you know, she turned off the cameras and, and, and she said to me, Uh, Molodoy young man, Vuyatkuda, where where are you from? And I said, Yeah, I'm I'm an American. And her response was, You have to be kidding me. You're Russians fantastic. <laughs> I thought you were Lithuanian. <laughs> right. <laughs> which wow, which, which on the praise. one hand, it's 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 a backhanded compliment, but it's really a compliment. I mean, obviously I wasn't speaking with a Russian accent. She had pegged me for being innoy, you know, being other, mm-hmm. but it wasn't an American. And I you know, to this day, I mean it sort of warms the compliment <laughs> of my heart, you know, my Russian is so good that I'm confused with being a Lithuanian.
0: <laughs> You'll take it, I can imagine. That's great.
1: Absolutely will take it <laughs> any day. I wish I could get that compliment now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I think, you know, part of the reason why I'm so curious about, um, you know, your ability to speak the language is every time I read a foreign translated work, you know, you know, we have amazing translators here, but you know, there is always this feeling inside of me that I'm, I'm missing something so crucial through the process of translation. And I, I'm I'm sure what I'm missing is a kind of je ne sais quoi. I can't quite put my finger on it. And I'm wondering, you know, if, if you have experience being somewhat uh, fluent in Russian and you can read these books, like, do you have any insights as to what that missing
1: piece is? Well, it's without sounding like a 19th century romantic. Um, it, it is, you're, you're missing sort of the spirit of, of the language. And we have all these wonderful tools now. You can take pretty much any phrase in any language. You can plug it into tra- Google Translate, like what used to be Babelfish online for the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fans. Um, you plug it in, you push a button, and it pukes out English. Or, you know, vice versa, you put in the English if you, if, you, if you speak, you know, I don't know, Russian or, or, or Swahili or whatever, and it, it pukes out uh, the, the words in your, in your native tongue. And you're like, okay, I think I, I understand the general gist of things. And in time, with artificial intelligence and the rest of it, it's going to become more and more uh, precise, but I don't think it's ever going to be exact. Um, what you're missing, and, and, and you do miss it, I agree with you, you can read literature in translation, and it's not quite the same. And I feel the same way if I'm reading a, you know, a work of German literature, Italian literature, French literature. I know I'm missing something because I'm reading in English. It's most pronounced with poetry. Yeah, I can because imagine Poetry is so incredibly difficult to translate. And what you're missing is, you're, you're missing, the, the again, the, the nuance, the spirit, the turns of phrase, the rhythm, which is especially true for poetry, right, because you've got meters and lines and things like that, and you can get those things to match up. They never quite fit. And all I can say is um, it, it, it's that spirit that you, you don't quite get because you haven't you're not thinking through it in that native language. And that's that was when, for example, going back to the question of fluency, I realized that I had reached a certain level of fluency in Russian was the first time you dream in a foreign language. Interesting. Okay. And you wow. know, I have. I don't, do it very, I don't do it now very often because I'm not using my Russian as much as I would like on a daily basis. Certainly not engaged. And I, I was very fortunate when I was there in 94, 95. I lived with a family. They sort of adopted me. They were the, the parents of a of a friend of mine I had met in graduate school. So I was living, I was living the Russian life, so to speak, in this uh, you know, for the post-Soviet period palatial apartment of four rooms with three other people. You know, my my friend's mother and father and his younger brother and I, when we were we were all in this four-bedroom apartment, four-room, four-room apartment, not four-bedroom apartment. Um, so you're, you you're sort of on top and living with people and you get to understand them. You pick up mannerisms. Um, and that's just, you sort of internalize that. That's how you learn a language. That's how you adopt a culture. Um, you don't do that by sitting, you know, back in the day, um, you know, I would have been going to the language lab at the University of Kansas and putting on the headphones and, right. yeah. you know, which is kind of funny. My name is skort in Russian, which means cat. <laughs> But um, it's the the way you actually acquire the fluency in the language is by living it. And there's no replacement. There's no replacement for for doing it in country in an extended period, which is why, you know, when when undergraduate students ask me for advice, which they do from time to time in a department chair, and I've been doing this for a long time, you know, what do I need to do as an undergraduate? And I tell them the very first thing that you do, if you do nothing else as an undergraduate student, you should learn a foreign language. You should master it. It's the single most important thing that you can do. Um, and if you're, if you're, an, if you're a legacy speaker, let's say you grew up in, and we get this a lot here in Texas. You grew up in a Spanish-speaking household. Uh, you should, you you should, you should learn to speak Spanish. Um, you should learn to speak Vietnamese. We have a large Vietnamese population here. And for the students of those who are the first-generation immigrants, there's an effort, you know, oftentimes I think, to sort of get away from that because you want to become fully immersed in the new culture, but you don't want to lose that because that ability to speak a second language puts you in a great place to learn a third language. Yeah, you know, I, I, only, I, only speak, I only speak Russian. I wish I had spent a little bit more time uh, with French or with German when I was in college, um, but, you know, at a certain point, there are only so many hours in the day, um, and I was in my early 20s. <laughs> <laughs> <I weren't> <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually kind of a miracle that I made it as far as I can. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, learning, learning—that's that's how you do it. It's being immersed in that culture, and that's what helps you develop, I think, a better appreciation and a, and a feel. I mean, see, I know it seems it's not particularly precise I'm talking about feel of the language, the spirit of the culture, but I think all that is there. And artificial intelligence and automatic translations and the rest of it don't quite get us there. It's not the same.
0: Yeah, I, I completely. Um... <laughs> Completely, hear you. I wish someone had told me that when I was uh, seventeen, entering college,
1: to pick up a second language. at night. Well, wait I mean, look. I'll be mean, honest with you, though. It's not too late. I mean, as you grow older, your capacity for acquiring additional languages declines. You yeah. so, <laughs> know, I, f- I wake up in the morning and I hurt. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> but I mean, you're, you're still because I didn't. Again, I didn't start. I had I had the typical sort of high school experience with German. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I sat in the back of the class and I cut up and I acted like an ass. Um and didn't didn't pay attention to it. but I began I began uh, my my Russian language training relatively late. It was in the it was in the uh, summer between my sophomore and junior years. And what I attempted to do is I took a it was either a six or an eight week intensive language. It was all of the first year of Russian compressed down into eight oh. week. and i was I was literally living in my mother's basement um in Topeka, Kansas, and commuting to Lawrence, where K U is located, to work my student work job in the library. It's always a great place to work as the library if you're a student. And then taking I think I was taking four or five or even six hours of Russian a day. Wow. And by about three weeks into the eight week semester, I was pulling a D and I had to quit I dropped out. I just I couldn't do it. It was just too much. Um, Complicated, it was too difficult. But I still had to have the language requirement. And so I decided, well, look, you know, I'm out. I don't know, 1500 bucks, whatever it cost me. I don't remember. That money was shot. I didn't get the refund. Um, but then decided, well, look, fall semester, I'm going to give it one more one more stab. I'm not going to quit. I'll, I'll try one more time. I, yeah, I sort of persevered. Enrolled in the first semester of first-year Russian and – I was I, mean, I was the best student in class. Well obviously I was the best student. <laughs> in class. I just had I had just had 3 weeks of what I thought was all holy terror trying to pick this up but I was far enough ahead of the other students to have confidence that I could master the material and that's the that's the thing about language and really learning in general is having the confidence that you can master the material. And the failure, and I failed. I mean, I was going to fail the class. I had a D when I dropped it. Ooh, my GPA, Professor Palmer, You, can, well, I've got to have an A. Tough, right? Failure is one of the best things that can happen to you if you don't make it a habit. Right? <laughs> if, if you fail and can learn from it, that really is one of the best things that can happen. Um, you know, there's a famous. I do history of uh, technology and culture as well. And there's this very famous quote. A newspaper reporter, I think, it was it asked Henry Ford. Um, it was Henry. No, it was, it was. It was Henry Ford. It was Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison, as he was working towards his marketable incandescent light bulb, all the processes that they went through, and this this uh, interviewer was saying, you know, to uh, to Edison, well, you know, how many times have you failed? You, you you're going to fail 99 times out of 100. Um, and, and Edison shot back, no, I didn't fail 99 times. I discovered 99 ways it didn't work. Right? So to put a positive spin on that, the failure set me up for success. And I think that's a lesson that all students at any level really need to take to heart is that you don't be afraid to fail. Don't make a habit of it. Learn from the mistake from from failure. But you've got to learn from it. And there's you know, right now in American academic culture and American culture writ large, you know, there's there's this stress to succeed at all costs. Um and it's it's crippling learning, frankly.
0: And <clears throat> I think just to tie it back to the Imperial Russian lectures, yeah. um you actually talk about a lot of different innovators throughout um the centuries, both you know, in America, in Germany, in London, and also in Russia. And, you know, one of the conclusions, um, you know, if I may, that you come to is that, you know, genius or a great mind is not necessarily enough. Um, you need to have the genius plus these kind of wider pieces of infrastructure in place. And one of the biggest ones is the ability to fail, the ability to make mistakes and learn from them. And you... Uh, give these examples of these incredible uh, innovative Russian inventors or thinkers, but they don't have this kind of uh, uh, safety net to fail and go back to the well and try something again in the way that Edison does. And because of that, they get lost in the annals of history um, mm-hmm. when they didn't need to, they they had the brains, they had uh, the capabilities and everything like that. So just to really strengthen your, your example here, it applies
1: throughout history. Right, and that that's sort of my idiosyncratic take on Russian history. I'm I'm looking for a grand. I'm 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 the kind of scholar who prefers grand narratives to digging down into the, these five days in the life of a certain person, or this these two weeks in the history of a country, Um and what you know sort of looking at the lives and the patterns and the way things have evolved. I mean, dating back, and of course, you know that that course, if I remember right, it begins at the beginning, you know, with with the baptism of the Rus. You know, to the Ukrainian mm-hmm. folks who may be listening, yes, I understand that Kiev is is, is Ukraine <laughs> and all the rest of that. Um, they, they've been a bit harsh, too. <laughs> I can um, imagine, but it's it it, it is it, it's more than just you know being a, a stunning genius. I mean, the, I, I tell my I tell my son um, who's got his who has his own significant talents, um, as all people do. Um, you know, graveyards are full of talented people. Grim, um, but uh, and a great quote. Not, you know, what a daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. Jeeminy, Jeeminy you know, <laughs> crickets and all the rest of it. it. You have to, you have to be able to apply that talent and wrestle with it. And you have to not, again, not be afraid to fail because that's what takes that level of talent where you, you're not the best. You're never the best. Um, no matter where you are, there's, it's, it's a ben, I'm ben Folds fan. There's always someone better than you at what you do and you can't let it defeat you and you don't want to rest on your laurels. You want to, you want to constantly improve. And, you know, you have times in your life when, you know, you're, you're doing well, you think you're, you're improving, and then you sort of settle into a rut. We all do these things. Um, The, the, the keys to fight through them. And that's one of the things about the Russians is so many of these inventors had so much resilience, so much drive, so much passion. They overcame so many odds now, that's not to say that American inventors, regardless of their, you know, socioeconomic class or things like that, haven't encountered problems. But, you know, in, whether in the Soviet case, certainly in the 1920s and the 1930s under Stalin, um, which which is not an imperial class, but you, I think you understand my point here. Um, you know, failure was a matter. It could be a matter of life and death. Literally life yeah, and death. Yeah. Um, you know, and no imperial, freedom to fail. You know, there's no freedom to fail. I mean, there's just no freedom to fail. And the other thing about – the other thing that's curious about those Russian social, political, economic, and cultural contexts is when there's no freedom to fail, it also dampens innovation, right? Because if you're not willing to try something new, I mean, you you inevitably are risking failure. It it creates sort of a complacency. It creates a culture of complacency and a culture of get-alongism because, you know – if, you know, I'm under the mandate of the factory manager, I'm under the mandate of the red manager in the Soviet case to meet my production quota. And the way that we've been doing this for the last 15 years meets that production quota. Do I want to risk innovating and bringing in a new way of doing it and then finding out that, well, we need to tweak it once or twice. But while we're tweaking it, we're not meeting the quota. Does that make sense? I mean, that's exactly what the case was in the Soviet system uh, after Stalin, no doubt about that. But we see some of this, and I talk about it in the Imperial Russian class. You see some of this in Imperial Russia where state ministries played such an inordinately important role in providing the capital, providing the incentives, uh, and providing uh, the, the pay. The profit uh, to in- institutions that are set up whose primary market is the state. When the when the state is your primary market, right? When the state is the primary purchaser of the goods or the products that you are going to uh, deliver, who's master? When the state is master. Of you're, going to, state, you're going to yeah. do anything that you can to meet that quota in order to keep your. And it's a personal decision too. I want to keep my position. I want to keep my perquisites, I want to keep my salary. I want to keep my social status. I don't want to rock the boat. Uh, and there's a lot of that going on, um, now in the West, right? I think Russian history can be very instructive uh, of, and it's, and it's, it's that tension here between freedom and security. Um, that's, that's a universal concern. Um, in the Russian case, it's let, it's sort of leaned in one direction for the better part of the last 150, 200 years in the West. Central uh, Europe, Western Europe, the United States its leaned in the other direction, you know, more towards freedom than than towards security. But that tension exists um, in in European civilization and it exists everywhere, I'm sure. Um, But the way it plays out in Russia is particular. Um, And that's one of the things that I and again, I, I, I do expect at some point to go back to teach the course again. There are things I'd like to revise. Um, with the production value and things like that, some other examples I want to bring in, based upon additional readings I've done since that class was last taught, um, and then eventually, because the question most people ask, and I think maybe the one that you had asked me when you first emailed me, was, "Where's the Soviet version?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and as I and I, I keep telling, I, I for the longest time, some people would e- email me and I just didn't respond. I tried to respond as often as I could, um, in light of everything else. But there is a Soviet version out there. Um, in fact, I was yeah. going back and looking, and I have all of the Soviet lectures, the audio recorded, save for the last one. Somehow I failed to record the last <laughs> lecture that semester. But I was I was doing a bunch of courses at, at the same time because of things that were going on at my previous institution. I was trying to reach as many people as possible, students who were enrolled there. And then I realized, you know, what the heck, I'll put some of these courses online um, and, and see what the response is. And I had... Uh, my flight culture course, my course on, on aviation culture, was up briefly um, for a time. The problem there was I kept getting uh, copyright dings from the folks at Google because there's a lot of – if you're, you're going to teach a course on aviation culture, you're going to have a lot of music, videos, and things like that, which I can use under fair use, under American copyright law, for nonprofit educational purposes, which is what I was doing. But it just got – it got so tiresome. Um, I just pulled them all. I had tried pulling the, I had tried pulling some of the songs and some of the clips and things like that. And then I, I went back and I looked at the I was like, this isn't working. You know, I've got this because, you know, it may be that the clip is helping to make the point. Now I'm going to, what I hope to do with the Russian course is go back and add some of that stuff. Um there are there are video clips and things like that and I've got some of my own stuff. I can show you what the Taiga looked like because I was there and here are photos I took or here's a mm-hmm. video that I took of me fishing on uh, Lake Onega or something like that. Um but it's um it's it, it's it's yeah, well I just, I don't know where that's going, but um it's sort of putting them together has been it was like, again it was a uh going back to the topic of, of not being afraid to fail, um I was I failed repeatedly trying to put these courses together, um, trying to do voiceovers and things like that, trying to record, you know, a lot of people, um, the first couple of times or the first hundred times they hear their own voice recorded. Mm-hmm. I know it very well. <laughs> I sound like an idiot. I can't imagine I would want to sit and listen to me talk. And some people don't. <laughs> They've <maybe laughs> told me. Thank you. Um, but, you know, you're making the recordings and the things like that, you 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 work through it. And uh, whether it's whether it's trying to put together a podcast, whether it's trying to put together a lecture, whether it's learning a foreign language, whether it's, you know, trying to take trigonometry, I mean, don't be afraid to fail. Um, persevere. And that's actually one of the things I've learned from the Russians, some of these incredible stuff I've read and some of the incredible things I've seen in that country, given the amount of time that I've spent there, where, where people are over to, able to overcome incredible amounts of adversity, incredible amounts of adversity that, Frankly, uh, I'm not not trying to be um, mean um, or denigrate anybody, but levels of adversity that typical Americans can't even conceive.
0: Yeah, the the Russian through line seems to be overcoming some sense of struggle or suffering in a way that you know we can't possibly imagine. I remember one of the um, things that has stuck with me most from the lectures were. Um, these people who, the barge haulers, men or women who simply work 12 hours a day, regardless of the weather. And they're on the side of rivers hauling by hand and foot these boats so that they can travel up and down the rivers of Russia. And you show this photo of this group of women just hauling a barge. Uh, uh, What was the Russian word again? Is it the burlaki?
1: Burlyak. is is plural. well, yeah. Okay. Literally literally, harnessed to the ship or harnessed to the barge like cattle.
0: And you said that there was something like 600,000. 600,
1: there were 600,000 of them by the middle of the 19th century. This would have been around 1850, 1860, at a time when, I'll get the numbers wrong, I have a historian's memory. At a time when in the United States, you may have had as many as 20 or 30,000 steamboats. Which involved no hauling, no no, no, it's just steam you're feeding the coal up the engine and you know that sort of thing, and how are how are how are the how are the barges being hauled along the Volga human labor power you know and again that's what that's what that's one of the things about the course that I hope people who are able to stick with it you know again don't mind the uh, the, the, the production uh, issues can can take away. Is what I what I'm trying to do with that course, and what I'm looking forward to doing again when I go back and revise it a bit, is telling a, telling parts of Russian history that are not typically covered in in your standard Imperial Russian history class, which is the way I had taught the class prior to this major revision, where what I wanted to do was inject here my interest in technology and cultural development and a little bit of science. And examine those things within the Russian context, which you know all of this came, came out of that the, the first book that I wrote on on Russian aviation, which was premised upon a very simple question: What is Russian about Russian aviation? I so, did. if if you can take that premise, I thought I, answered, I did a pretty good job answering that. You take that and you extend that to all of Russian technology the history of Russian technology and culture, the history of Russian technology and science, uh, a, a culture and a civilization that has had remarkable success, I mean, real geniuses in the area of techni- uh, technical development, scientific development, mathematics, and physics, not all of whom, by the way, of course, are Russians. You also have, you know, we, Russia was never a, a, an ethnically homogeneous state, dating all the way back to um, Muscovy and, of course, Kiev for the, before that. It's always been a multi-ethnic polity. Because of the geography of the area, so that some of these people who are attributed as being men of men or women of Russian genius are actually ethnic Germans, or ethnically Ukrainian, or ethnically you know Baltic or whatever, um, but still they're they're working within a similar socio-political, socio-economic context, and are achieving incredible things that most folks in the United States simply know nothing about, or even in even in Western Europe know nothing about because we're so fixated on our own uh, success stories, you know, our Edisons, our Fords. Um, and even if you think you're in terms less of, not just inventors and scientists, but if you think about people whose fame rests on technology, my favorite example here is Charles Lindbergh. Everyone knows who Charles Lindbergh was, right? He was the first man to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. No, he wasn't. He was the first man to fly solo, First person to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean, there had been something like 95 people cross the Atlantic by air prior to Lindbergh, but he did it by himself. Um, but the funny thing is, another anecdote, another uh, story um, from my, my, my time traveling in Russia, when I was there doing the, the dissertation research, I received an invitation to give a talk um and, a, and an affiliate of the Russian Academy of Sciences on the work I was doing on aviation, but they wanted something special. They wanted me to talk because they were aviation specialists, Russian aviation specialists. They wanted me to talk about something having to do with American aviation. And actually at the time I, I knew I felt I knew more about Russian aviation than American aviation. Okay, it's fine. I'll do that. Um, I said, how about if I give you <clears throat> I'll give you a presentation on the role of Charles Lindbergh in American culture. And the fellow who had invited me was just like a blank stare. And he said to me, so Lindbergh, who's that? You have one his Who's Lindbergh? I don't know who this guy is. You don't know who Charles Lindbergh was. And I explained, you know, Charles Lindbergh, American aviation hero, crossed the Atlantic by himself, Spirit of St. Louis, 1927, landed at uh, landed at Paris and he looked at me and he said ah конечно Vash чекалов Lindbergh, of course he's your chkalov now now what that means to folks who may be listening to the podcast valery chkalov is the most famous arguably the most famous of the soviet pilots of the uh of the 1930s Chukalov was part of a three-man equipage or a three-man crew that made the first transpolar flight from, from Moscow uh, to just outside of Vancouver, as a matter of fact. Oh. So when when uh, Soviets or Russians to this day think of aviation, they're thinking, of course, in terms of a national context. And their greatest aviation hero is Valeti Chukalov. I mean, he, now he, fly, he doesn't fly by himself, he flies with two other folks, uh, Gromov and, and, uh, uh, Baidukov. But within, that's what I, I talked about in the, in, in the book, is, you know, this, within the Soviet context, the Russian context, what was important here was, was the fact that they didn't fly as individuals. You know, for, for, for the deep. Soviets, yeah, for the Soviets, after Chikal after, I'm sorry, after Lindbergh's flight, Lindbergh is criticized In the emerging Stalinist press in 27, 28, and 29 for being, for demonstrating bourgeois individualism. He was a selfish individual as opposed to being someone who worked for the collective good of the entire country, which is what Soviet pilots did. Now that I think is fascinating. That's an entirely different, because the airplanes have to fly. The airplanes have to comport with the laws of gravity. You have to achieve lift. You have to fight against drag in order to get the thrust. The physics of flight are no different in Russian airspace than they are in American airspace or Canadian airspace. But the way in which that event is understood by Russians, Americans, or Canadians, because there's an entirely separate Canadian aviation culture, Canadians look at aviation differently than Americans do, that to me is incredibly interesting.
0: Because it shows you. It's almost just like a reflection back. On the
1: culture at large, um, in some ways it is right. It, it does reflect back on what those enduring cultural values are or are not, and at the same time, it shows you the, the the extent to which technology is malleable. Malleable again, the airplane the airplane has to achieve sufficient lift, right, to fight against the forces of gravity. It has to achieve a certain amount of thrust in order to move forward. That is true in any context. But how everything else around that is interpreted depends upon the culture, the politics, the economics, the social system. That's the part about the history of technology and, to a lesser degree, science that I just find fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And there, there's sort of the questions that you apply to these types of things, whether it's aviation or whether it's video games, for example, or anything else, um, gives you insight into these, you know, what for us would be a foreign environment, a foreign culture. And 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 we have we have that that item we have that artifact the airplane that we all can refer to everyone knows what an airplane is mm-hmm. so we all understand the airplane we understand the function we have that reference that we all can relate to but it's through that then we can have, arrive at a greater understanding of the culture or the people behind that specific iteration of the artifact if that makes sense
0: yeah and I think. Um, just to extend the point further, one of the things that you did say in this initial, uh, aviation lecture was that, um, when, you know, human beings look at the airplane, they see it as this kind of, um, object of transcendence. And, and, you know, that's in a way we don't look at, we don't look at a car that way. Um, we look at an airplane as, you know, this kind of a little bit more godly, Um, piece of technology in some way it kind of bridges the gap between the heavens and the the grounds of the earth and so it it becomes even more significant when you look at these wider cultural elements and factors that are going into it because it's not just how do human beings in different cultures approach any piece of technology Mm -hmm. or cultural artifact is like how do these different cultures approach the concept of transcendence and they all do it in such different ways um and that to me is very interesting as well your your first lecture on aviation you're not just talking about russian aviation in that at all you're talking about what they're doing in china or in uh in persia and um and it's just they all have this same kind of idea of transcendence with the heavens but they approach it in such different ways, and that can tell us about these people's cultures in in really interesting and uh, deep ways. I think what,
1: one of the one of the really cool things uh, since, and I'm not saying that my book did it. Um, you know, people had written sort of cultural histories of aviation before my book came out in uh, first first edition in 2006. But since my book came out, it, it was a, Joseph Korn, American historian, um, wrote it was in 82 or 83 a book by the by titled The Winged Gospel America's Romance with Aviation. Corn sort of pioneered this idea. But I mean, he's using he's using the obvious example you know, the nation that invented flight. You know, if there are any Brazilians listening to your podcast, Alberto Santos-Dumont <laughs> was not the first to fly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um it, it was in fact the Wright brothers who achieved controlled flight for the first time. Although Alberto Santos-Dumont is a fantastically interesting person. Um so Korn, Korn wrote this history of, of American aviation, talked about sort of how talked about how the airplane was endowed by Americans with a spiritual value. And I, I picked up on what Korn had done, and I said, in, to a certain extent, what I want to do is I want to do this for the Russians, but obviously I'm going to ask a different set of questions because Russian culture is different. And now since then, we've had a number of really interesting works come out. Um, Willie Hyatt has written on Andean uh, aviation in Peru. There have been short uh, or longer essays and books on Egyptian aviation, on Afghani aviation. There's an entire uh, library on Canadian aviation. So there's a couple of folks over in Great Britain working on British aviation culture, South African aviation culture. It's been really fascinating to see how this has expanded. Um, over about the last 14, 15 years, where you can write these sorts of national histories that are about aviation, but you're using aviation as a prism or a lens through which you're going to look at these, these more enduring cultural values. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. I I think, I think to me it makes perfect sense. And, you know, one of the things you're trying to get across here is that there actually is something very special about the airplane as a piece of technology versus any general kind of industrial or mechanical. Piece of tech, there is this extra element
1: of transcendence
0: that makes I, it I, I, far I think more interesting. The
1: fact, that the uh, you know at, at the moment the only thing I have you know sort of available for folks who are interested, it's not live yet fully. I'm it's like we had talked about at one point earlier in our first conversation. I'm I'm looking to move away from Google um, because you know concerns I have about you know what I post there and how they try and monetize it. And I would I would prefer that these things you know. You may have, folks who who may have stumbled upon the Imperial Russian lecture, or maybe if you end up there after listening to this podcast, you know, please do note: there's not a single one of those that's monetized. There's not supposed to be anything on that website that's monetized. You know, no commercial interruptions, none of that. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, part of that goes back to my you know my my position as someone who's been in public education you know my my entire adult life. You know, I've got this expertise. It came thanks in part to American taxpayers. Um, you know, who provided Fulbright and, you know, NEH and ACLS and all this sort of stuff. I want to be able to, to, to share these things with folks. The, uh, if, if you end up over there, um, you know, and I hope you do the, the, the lectures do, you know, I'm trying to help folks understand these larger cultural motifs and things like that. As I'm working now to get the flight culture lectures redone, because I have, I have all the audio. And I'm going back and I'm redoing the, the visuals for them, including more film and things like that. Those are the ones that I want to have done next. Um, you, you've seen the one. It's really not so much the first lecture. That's the opening night. The opening night, um, the opening night okay. for me for a new class is always supposed to be a spectacle. Here is this thing that's going to wow you, draw you into the course, and see if I can edutain you, you know, for an hour and a half or so. So I'm working right now, I, I should have the first full-blown lecture wrapped up by this weekend, and that covers uh, folk, Greek mythology, uh, Russian folklore, um, and then uh, Christian images of flight that explain in sort of more detail how the, the foundation, if you will, for interpreting the airplane really is based upon Western perceptions. And i can happy to argue that with somebody else who's a, a scholar of aviation culture, but I'm going to stick to my guns there. I mean, the airplane is, uh, is, is the cultural product of Western civilization. And the, and although you know, the Chinese, the Maori, Native Americans, Africans all have mythologies of flight that play specific roles in those cultures, you know, the avi- a- a- the airplane and machine powered flight as such really is a product of the West. And so what has happened is that the technology has been viewed by non Western cultures, and that includes the Russians here even though they're sort of quasi-Western, quasi-non-Western, um, by, even by most of their own admissions. Um, they t- they're, they're looking at their own culture. They're looking at their own aviation or their own technological culture refracted through that Western foundation, if that makes sense. And I'm mixing metaphors like compost. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, that's, that's one of the things, too, that I think is very interesting about the history of technology is the way in which it is international, it inc- it requires us to engage in in understanding or at least attempting to understand these different cultural circumstances. Um, air I think I do think the airplane is the single most important example of the 20th century. Uh, 21st century, not so much. That's probably computing. Um, right. But the yeah, the airplane, but the the airplane does does embody these these transcendent ideas in the way that the automobile does not. I mean, in the American context, most certainly the automobiles close associations with individual freedom because what the automobile did, and that's different from transcendence, right? Freedom is part of transcendence, but freedom is not the same thing necessarily as transcendence. In, in the case of the automobile, and there's a vast scholarly literature on automobile history, you know, the ability to get up and move and to go and to drive across the country without having to worry about railway schedules and things like that was immensely liberating in its own way. Um, especially for youngsters, right? I got my first car. It was a big deal because mm-hmm, now I'm free from my parents and that sort of thing. Um, the airplane takes that though literally and figuratively to an entirely different level.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh I think I definitely, I want to talk about some broader history things. I want to talk about the spoke network, but, um, I think the one final thing I want to mention on just watching this first aviation lecture that you sent me was um, <clears throat> you really do show that in the course of a century, we have the inception of like, let's say the first airplane that's flying over the Atlantic. And then over the course of a century, it turns almost away from this transcendent thing to this kind of highly commercialized, almost uh, it's a little bit cynical. You know, you go to some sort of consumerist, style airport, you could pat it down. And it's just kind of this functionally um, necessary thing that we do now. And that that happens over the course of a century. And it's funny that you mentioned, okay, what is it in the 21st century? And you say it's computing. And I feel like that same process has happened, but it's just completely crunched out. It didn't take us a century to get computing to the same state of like, oh, it's just cynical, um, kind of consumerist, mindless. The, the transcendence was lost so much more quickly than it was with, uh, the airplane. Um, and I, I just, I thought that that was interesting. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but no, I,
1: in the main, I, I do. In the main, I do. And that's one of the things, you know, as a Russian historian, we're not, not all Russian historians are cynics, but it helps. <laughs> <laughs> I As can imagine. You, know, you may imagine. You develop it, a healthy degree of cynicism that you didn't have to begin with. I had a good deal of it to begin with, so mine's only intensified. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we, with the airplane, I think that is true, but there, there's also, you have to strike a balance here. Um, one, of the, one of the scholars and, you know, you know, folks who really focus on sort of the history of technology and the sociology of technology, because that's also sort of a subfield, in the history of technology and science, what we call STS or science and technology studies. And a lot of, a lot of great programs at places like uh, Georgia Tech, MIT, uh, Cornell, and things like that. They sort of focus on the sociology, the networks. Um, they've got different ways of approaching it. I, I guess I do sort of a, I like, my influence, you know, goes back to, to a fellow by the name of Melvin Kransberg, um, he was the uh, sort of the, the, the influence behind the establishment of something known as the, the Society for the History of Technology. And one of the things I try and impart to my students is back in the early 80s, he gave a keynote address at the conference, the annual conference for SHOT, as it's called. It was later published in their journal, Technology and Culture, uh, as a short essay called Kranzberg's Laws. And he lays out six six laws or six general rules for studying history of technology and culture. And among the things I tell my students, aside, you'll learn a foreign language, I I tell them, whether it's the airplane class or the video game class or a general class on the history of technology, I said, if you learn nothing else from this class, you'll fail. (laughs) But (laughs) but if if you only learn one thing, the one thing I want you to leave this with is Kranzberg's first law. And and that is that technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. Technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. This comes back to the point that you were making here about the cynicism and the airplane. And we've gone from this thing of airplane as being this miraculous uh, device of transcendence in which these early pilots like Blario and others are these Promethean heroes of the 20th century. There are men who have conquered nature and time and are transforming humanity, to, you know, okay, I've got to go to DFW, get on a plane and have the TSA TSA guy feel my junk. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Whether or not you want to keep that in the podcast is your business, right? But I mean, <laughs> honestly, that's about as cynical as you can get, right? This is what airline travel has become. It is absolutely horrifically bad. It's horrifically bad before all the pandemic stuff. I just, no one enjoys flying unless you can afford to fly, you know, first class, that sort of thing, which is not what most people can do. So you can look at this and you can say, it's so awful, that's the bad. But wait a second, it's neither bad nor is it, it's neither good but nor is it bad. You have now the ability, the way that those earlier folks did in the teens, right, 1914, 1915, you can get on a plane, you know, I, I, I'm 20 minutes from the airport. I can I can drive to the airport, get on an airplane, and be anywhere in the world in less than what, 14, 15 hours?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The world shrinks.
1: That, that is also miraculous in its own way. Right? That is also, I mean, you're, you're transcending time in that regard. Um, so what I what I try and do is, despite my very healthy cynicism um, and skepticism, is to try and maintain a balance and recognize that as bad as things look in some regards, there are things to be very positive and optimistic about. Same thing can be true with the, the computers, which is the example that you would give because you 're right you know things have compressed so quickly and i I remember when the in, when the intertubes you know first began um you you had um, Netscape, the first browser um, where you could get in the browser because i was I was on the inter in the intertubes even before you had Netscape when you had A o l and all these dial up things and that sort of thing and then when Netscape comes along all of a sudden now you can navigate it, and you had this fantastic wide open Space, I mean, metaphorical space, um, that you could explore and do really cool and nifty things. And porn, right? Because <laughs> all yeah, come from the very words. beginning, from the very beginning, what what are the most most populated channels? Porn channels. What does that tell you about humanity? <laughs> right. I read, you know, this morning when I was getting up and sort of you know thumbing because thumb, we're now thumbing through the news. Thumbing through the news on my phone, it was some article that uh, some fellow had written for some uh, j- uh, online journal talking about how we are the moral superiors, right, of, fa- of the founding fathers of this country because of blah, 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 blah. And my thought was, you are an arrogant ass, <laughs> <laughs> and you are historically illiterate if you think that we are morally superior. To, and I'm not just the founding fathers. I mean, any, any culture, any peoples who came before us. We're better than the Swahili of the ninth century. We're better than the Byzantine Christian. I don't want to hear it. I mean, they, they were people too. They had the same hopes, the same fears, the same dreams, the same issues. What we're dealing with though now with the, the technology that surrounds us is all of this is being compressed so much more rapidly. And while we are being joined, you know, it, it is in its own way sort of miraculous. That, you know, you can get on an airplane, you can physically be anywhere in the world that you want in you know, 12, 13, 14 hours. You can log on to the internet and you can be virtually anywhere in the world instantaneously so that we're having this conversation, however many, what, two two thousand 2,000, 2,500 miles apart. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And here we are talking to each other in real time.
1: That, that is the sort of thing that is immensely fantastic. <laughs> Miraculous. But it's not something that people didn't conceive. Right? Uh, There was was a a science science fiction writer, i I talked about about the Imperial Russian Russian class, class but last name is who who wrote wrote one one of the earliest works works of Russian Russian science fiction. I don't know if I mentioned him in the Russian Imperial class or not. I may mention him, if not, I will teach him. And And, and and he he did, did. he He prognosticated prognosticated in his his book book of the the, the year year 4388. Email. Email. (laughs) You know, this this miraculous thing that he, what did he call it? It I can't remember now. I think it was like uh, um, see-through aluminum or something like that when actually ends up making it into one of the Star Wars, the Star Trek movies. Um, Invisible aluminum or something. The, the, The point is that you know the people who came before us could envision these great things. They had hopes and fears and concerns, and they were they were fallen or sinners if you're a Christian, uh, just like the rest of us. Um, you know, but to think that we are somehow morally superior to these people, you know, especially in light of the 20th century, you know, at the, <laughs> yeah. actual, the actual, absolute peak, you know, for the time uh, of human technological achievement and human progress, uh, we get the gulag. We yeah. we get Auschwitz and Birkenau, and yet we're morally superior? Please.
0: Yeah. I, I think You know, a lot of people just kind of walk around with this uncritical assumption that we are all on this grand march of moral progress throughout history on Mm -hmm. this kind of standard linear progression as time goes on. And the, you know, the quickest way to get out of that mindset is to just begin to look at history. Yeah, right.
1: (laughs) One of the things that I hear from time to time, you know, we've had politicians who like to refer to being on the right side of history. Making sure that right. you're on the yeah. proper side of the arc of history. Well, I mean, the Bolsheviks thought that they were on the right side of history. Uh,
0: everyone does.
1: Conversely, 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 um, you know, Francis Fukuyama, uh, wrote this mm-hmm. famous book, right? Uh, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, the last man, you know, at the end of history, well, Western capitalism had triumphed and everything was How'd that work out for us? Yeah. <laughs> so much for that. Yeah, right? It's like. not, you know, come on folks, you know, which is, I have, I have, uh, you know, personally, also professionally, I guess, this, a, a real cynicism, um, toward those who are absolutely convinced that, you know, their plan, their goal, their approach is going to solve the problems as we move forward in the great, great and glorious future. I've been, I spent my entire adult life Studying the great and glorious utopian future to come, you know, as, as a Soviet historian from a late imperial and an early Soviet historian uh, in in those the years and the days when they were absolutely convinced to the scientific principles of dialectical materialism as originally espoused by Marx and Engels and then as put into action by Lenin and perfected by Stalin, we were going to create no. it was it was as much of an illusion then. As, you know, our, our, many of our politicians and actors on both sides um, are, are, are beholden to their own illusions today. You know, we're all human, we're all mortal, we all make mistakes, we all fail. Um, as often as not. Um, you know, but, but to, to have this conceit, this arrogance that because we're here and now we're better than those who came before us, yeah you know this is a really good chance at history if there is any history you know twenty thirty forty fifty years from now, looking back at this time, those folks would be scratching their heads wondering what the was wrong with those people
0: yeah easily easily um we We ought to be a lot more careful um about the things that we think we are so sure of but actually we're incredibly naive of um and it reminds me of. You know two of the six themes of Russian history that you give uh, apply here far beyond russia uh, you know the first was you know a belief in russia's special past uh you can swap out Russia with uh pretty much any nation state at mm-hmm. from time to time and then the other thing was the faith in the transfigured future um and you know th- th- this uh you know this path from marx to the Soviet Union is a perfect example of that um but that is also not at all a unique experience to the nation state of Russia. Like, we all have these experiences in our own histories or in our own smaller scale lives. We just think we know that the future, what we're doing is completely marching us in the right direction. Um,
1: this, is, this is where I think Marx is, is often misunderstood. And especially for those who now, without getting overly political about, about situations surrounding us, sort of foundationally misunderstand... Marx, especially Marx as interpreted through the Russian context, because, you know, the Russians are the ones who put, uh, you know, it's not just Russians, it's Latvians and Estonians and mm-hmm. Lithuanians and a very large number of, of, of ethnic Jews, Trotsky and people like that within the Russian context. So it's not just Russians, you know, again. But it's, it's that experience of October 1917, the first attempt to put Marxism into practice as interpreted by Lenin. And and what they, they don't understand fully and I I do try and cover this in the Soviet class, is the extent to which, for those who embrace this, although Marx was gussied up with these claims of, of scientific certainty, this was a religion. This was a religious experience for people. This is what gave them faith. It was a secular form of religion. That owed in the, in the Bolsheviks context, especially in Lenin's context, as much to a writer, to, to bring us all the way back now to this issue of Russian literature that we talked about earlier. It's a writer by the name of Nikolai Chernyshevsky, who wrote a book, you may be familiar with it in the 1860s, 1864 is when it came, it came out, if I remember right, called Shdodielit. What is to be done? Which is the name that Lenin gives to his treatise, in 1903, when he's talking about the formation of what emerges the Bolshevik party, or a party of a new type, what is to be done. And his it is a conscious reference to Chernyshevsky's novel. The novel tells the story of a revolutionary movement. Rachmetyev is the revolutionary, and all he does is he's preparing, he's spending his entire life training for the revolution that is to come, that's going to sweep away the czarist order, and bring about a just society in which people will live in um, in palaces made of aluminum uh, with, with glowing electric lights. There will be no want. There will be nothing but plenty. Uh, Len was absolutely obsessed with this novel. Um, from a literary standpoint, it's hot garbage. It's ter- It is just... Awful to read. If I want to torture students, I will assign them Chernyshevsky's Shlodielet. Having said that, you you need to read it, or at least be familiar with it. Um, if, if I'm not feeling particularly cruel, then you assign the chapter, um, uh, on the dream of, the dream of Elena Pavlovna, Elena Pavlovna's fourth dream. And that that tells, that's the, that's the dream. It's the, the chapter tells the story of a dream in which the the dreamer envisions this uh, city of crystal and iron, iron and crystal. Now, I, I think I may talk about this in the Imperial Russian class. I don't remember.
0: Yeah, uh, this is the vision of utopia, right? The vision that everyone's falling onto,
1: which was which was based upon the Crystal Palace exhibition at the English, uh, uh, the Crystal Palace exhibition, eighteen fifty one. Okay, So you're tying – you see, refracted this vision of, of a utopia based upon this English display, refracted through Chernyshevsky's novel that makes its way into Lenin's mindset. But it becomes sort of a religious theme, that what you're going to do is you're going to, you're going to sacrifice, you're going to devote your entire life to the revolution. That's what Rachmetyev, the character in the book, does. Sleeps on a bed of nails, eats raw meat works as a barge hauler, you know, to to steal himself for the coming revolution. Lenin was fascinated with this novel, read it, I think, six or seven times, memorized huge chunks of it. And it's as much that as Marx that influences his ideas about how you're going to bring uh, into the world a revolutionary conspiratorial organization of men and women steeled you know, devoted entirely to the revolution, it becomes it becomes like an eschatological faith for them. It's a religion. Um, but it's a religion for Lenin's based entirely upon power. Because you know he, Lenin's more of a theorist of power than he is a theorist of Marxism. And he you know he he's brilliant in that regard. Um a very a very cruel and mean spirited man with very, very little direct experience of what Russians were going through in the 1910s because he was gone. He was in exile in Geneva.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine it was particularly uncomfortable in
1: Geneva for him either, right, like compared to – Well, it was a heck of a lot more comfortable for him there than <laughs> Petersburg or Moscow would have been. Yeah. You know, but then again, it's a sort of thing too, you know, well, you know, the, the, the czars had their prison camps. They did. They had their political prisoners. They did. Stalin escaped from prison seven times. Wow. I didn't know that. How how many how many times did your typical uh, um, Soviet Zek escape from the gulag? You know, and that and that gives you an idea here of the extent to which the Soviets had, you know, sort of perfected this thing. You know, and it's not it wasn't just you know the first concentration first concentration camps are actually um, Spanish in origin, dating back to the the uh, the, the, uh, the Spanish effort to quash the, the rebellion in Cuba. Brings America into it. The second iteration of concentration camps are American in the Spanish, uh, and am sorry, in the uh, following the uh, American, the Spanish American War, you know, we create them in the Philippines to try and put down an, an insurrection. So I don't want to, again, you have to understand these things in a broader context, but the, the, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, the, the Bolsheviks under, Sta- under Lenin and then Stalin perfect them. Um, and it's, it's, it's a remarkable turn. You, you would do, you would, you would, you would per- perpetrate such cruelty in order to achieve your utopia.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I read the short story like a long time ago, it's called the ones who walk away from Amalas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same concept. Like, yeah, we can, we can build this beautiful utopian society, even if the society is completely based upon this, the ultimate suffering of one singular child. And it's the same logic that they're yeah. using here. Like, you know, in order for us to get to this utopia, the, you know, the consequences are going to map out where like, you know, these people have to suffer for the overall good, the greater good, whatever it is. And they use these rationalizations as a way to get there.
1: The, the end, the ends, the, our noble ends justify our cruel means. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and that, that's, you know, that's as much a philosophical and religious question uh, that needs to be discussed and that, you know, largely isn't being discussed. Um, in, a, in whatever's left of American journalism, and whatever's left of, of of higher education, I mean, how much of this stuff is you know is discussed, is deeply discussed at a philosophical, a religious, a spiritual level, even even literature, a literary level. You know, we we, we want to. There's there's a movement afoot to sort of overturn the canon, or actually there's been a movement afoot for a long time, to overturn the canon of of, of Western literature. That includes here, um, in this case, Russian literature, um, without recognizing that, you know, for good or for ill, and it is both, you know, it is for good and for ill, that uh Western European and, and North American uh civilizations and cultures are primarily responsible for the contours um of the of the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, that if you overturn that and you ignore it. You're, you're missing out on learning the lessons, both the good lessons and, and the bad lessons. Um, it, it's amazing how many people are completely oblivious to the prison camp experience, um, in the Soviet Union. It, it, for me, and I know this isn't true for everybody, but for it, I find it remarkable that folks your age and some folks my age, um, are more than happy to walk through the streets waving, you know, red flags with hammers and sickles, um, and yet they would turn and you know to somebody, anybody who would even think of wearing a swastika, you know, and rightly denounce them for being a fascist. It's like, well, wait a second, folks, let's wind this back a bit. Um, you know that ideology for which you're waving the red flag with the hammer and sickle uh, killed how many times more? People indirectly and directly in the Nazis. Um, that's not to say I'm not I'm not in any way, shape, or form suggesting, you know, that there's anything remotely redeemable about the Nazis. But how is it that there's anything remotely redeemable about communism at this point?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I think I mean, all you need to do is you know read a, a chapter of the Gulag Archipelago
1: and you're done. It's like okay, that's enough. Right. I mean, uh, proof would, that I need. I <laughs> think that's just amazing, right? And again, I'm not, I, I this is not, I, this has nothing to do with, 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 you, cause you, you end up with these, you know, you don't want to get in a situation, well, you know, this, you know, the, the Armenian suffering was more than the Greek suffering was more than African American suffering was more than, than Jewish suffering. we don't want to go there, right? I, that there, you can't do that. Which, who had it worse? But it, it, it's, it's sort of staggering to contemplate that the number of folks who were exterminated in the camps in Germany were roughly equal to the number of people who died in the Great Famine.
0: In yeah, the raw numbers are the same.
1: Right? Well, I remember about, about 6 million, right? Um, to say nothing of the tens of millions of more who were in prison, the millions more who were shot summarily. Um, or exiled
0: and, or whatever it is, exiled, right? Exiled,
1: you know, families that were torn apart and that sort of thing. You know this idea, this ideology, both ideologies, obviously Nazism and, and that's the thing, Nazism and fascism are are justifiably completely discredited. How in the world is it that communism is not?
0: Uh, I mean, let me ask you this: because, they're, because,
1: because their intentions are good.
0: <laughs> well, okay. I, now I'm genuinely curious what you think of this because, you know, I'm with you when it comes to, you know, if, if we're going to denounce. If, if we're going to use our moral compass today to denounce things that happened in history, let's start with the worst possible things. Let's get Nazism out of the way. Let's get, you know, the, the Mao's China. Let's get the Soviet Union. Like, well, let's just, what,
1: Khmer Rouge. Who, who, who just even like, knows about the Khmer Rouge anymore? Right. right. And so and they, they, let's, they killed, what, upwards of half? half, half the, 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 in terms of percentage of the population, they were the worst of the bunch. Yeah, It's just like the
0: the scales of human suffering are unimaginable under these systems when you actually do the digging. Um, And so, you know, I'm, I'm with you, but I, I will say that one thing that, you know, how, how I feel today is I actually did study a lot of Marx Mm -hmm. throughout um, university. And, you know, my approach to Marx actually, and the professor's approach to Marx never really had anything to do with, uh, let's say applying, you know, Marx's principles to a functioning society or talking about the communist system or this transfigured future. Um, I really came to love and appreciate Marx because of the way that he was able to critique industrial capitalism. And I still think about these critiques. I feel like I'm successful today in the modern world mm-hmm. because I've understood you know, Marxist concepts of like, you know, surplus labor and what it means cool. to be a laborer versus uh, an employer and, you know, what it, what exploitation really means. And that doesn't, I don't need to have any of the communist uh, human suffering parts whatsoever right. at all, but I can still hold on to these kind of interesting thinking tools to look at capitalism today.
1: Well, no, no, I, I actually, I agree with most of what you just said. I mean, this is when I, when, I, when I teach the Soviet class, one of the things that they always read when I teach my class on Stalinism, one of the things we always assign is the Communist Manifesto, in part because it's short. I'm not going to give them Das Kapital. I don't know. Hey, das yeah, Kapital right. is no probably way. one <laughs> of those books that no one has actually ever read. You know, <laughs> um, yeah, no but, but the Communist Manifesto is a very good one. And within the Communist Manifesto, I mean, it's, it's, I, to agree here with your point, from the standpoint of critiquing capitalism, uh, Mark, Marx's critique is brilliant. There, there's no doubt about it. What he recognizes is that what he calls the so-called capitalist means of production, and you understand the term capitalism didn't appear in print until 1902. Right. First okay. time it appears in print is in 1902. Okay. Um, you know, but the capital, we we call now the capitalists the controllers of the means of production, the bourgeoisie, uh blah, blah, blah. Um that 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 dynamic of capitalism, that what what um I guess folks on the, on, on the free markers would call the creative destruction of capitalism, right, can create immense human misery. And there is absolutely no doubt the sweatshops, the, the, the child labor situations that you had, the degradation in which uh, the, the underclass in urban environments lived, whether it was in Berlin, in Moscow, in Petersburg, in London, New York, what have you. absolutely. Uh, appalling circumstances. There absolutely was desperate need for reform. His critique of capitalism is very, very trenchant, but he also recognizes the brilliance of the system. It is the most productive system ever devised by humanity. I mean, and it's not consciously devised. It sort of emerges out of these whole hosts of historical, geographic, social, political context, but there's there is absolutely no doubt that by the middle of the 19th century and onward, The productive capacities reached levels that had never before even been imaginable in human context, in human history. And this is one of the messages I have to the students in the technology classes. If you think about this for a second, if you think about the the very long, you know, dating back 10,000 years, the very first human civilization. You think about what, what life was like in a hunter-gatherer society. What life was like, heck, what life was like in the 1850s uh, on, in the prairie in Saskatchewan, right, or the prairie of western Kansas. What was life like in the 1850s? No running water, no electricity. You had an outhouse that you had to go to, you know, in February when it's minus 10 degrees, your children were as likely to die before, you know, I, I, I don't have the infant mortality statistics on my, you know, at, at my at my disposal, but you get the point here, right? How difficult was life like that for, for just average James and Joes? Now, you think about today in the, city of the United States, and let's set aside the question of homelessness, and let's set aside the question, those who are affected by homelessness and especially drug abuse, you know, living in Seattle and San Francisco and New York and places like that. Let's talk about people who um, are lower income, barely scraping by. Right? What is life like for them now? Here, relative to the life of folks who are considered to be well-to-do in the 1850s, what do you have at your disposal? If you're poor and you have and you have housing, you have heat in the winter, you have air conditioning in the summer. No one. How, how many famines have there been in American history? Or Canadian history, I can imagine the zero in Canadian history and in American um, history, zero. Okay. So far, right. let's, you know, let's hope <laughs> I know, I'm not trying to jinx us here. There, there, there's been no no famines. You you've, you have you have air conditioning. You have heating. You have clothing. You have food. Now is it is it you know farm to market organic you know produce that's been lovingly no you know it's 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 processed and all the rest of this. But you're not starving. Right. You have mass inoculation if you want it. You have access to education. Uh, you have more entertainments, whether it's, you know, the intertubes or the, or the cell phones that we have. You have, I mean, I can, and if you're, if you're even in the lower middle class into today, I can sit on my couch. I can pick up my phone. I can call someplace, have them deliver food to my door. And if I'm feeling, I feel in the mood, I can have them deliver liquor to my door. And we have it bad. Now again, again, all these things are relative socioeconomically. And yes, poverty is a, is a serious problem. Drug addiction is a serious problem. We have serious problems as societies. But we've achieved a level of material plenty in the aggregate overall that would have been inconceivable for the nobility I mean, the high, the kings and queens of Europe of the 17th century. You have more creature comforts. I have more creature comforts than the richest people on the planet did in the 19th century. Thanks. It's just, it's, you know, and yet, and yet we all sit around and we complain and we, we see these problems. We have to overturn the entire system. I don't want to overturn the entire system. The system has been really, really good for a lot of people. The system has left behind a lot of people. Those people, we have a moral obligation to take care of. And Marx would be focusing today, if he were alive, at those people. And he would be shaking his fist at whom? Bezos? Gates? Murdoch? Soros? You know, the billionaires who have made, in the aggregate, over a trillion dollars in the last eight months. Their fortunes have skyrocketed. And yet... And yet here's the curious thing, you know, our, our, our young communists out in the streets, why aren't they marching on Google? Why aren't they marching on Apple's headquarters and shaking them down for money? That's where the money is.
0: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's, I I guess all I want to say to that is that um, the only thing that I would be very curious about Mm -hmm. is, you know, are we making a huge assumption here that as material, Wealth and access to material goods increases. Is that at all moving the needle on how uh, we feel in our soul and our spirit as a human being Um, is the soul of this lower to middle class person who has heating and air conditioning? improved at all um, to, the, to the person working off the land and the farm in Kansas in the 1850s? Like, have they actually, do they feel well, like a more comfortable human being, or do they just have more material goods around
1: for, them? For, for, the, for the writer, the nameless writer I mentioned earlier today, he's absolutely convinced. Right. Our founding fathers were morally superior to them. If you're looking for my answer, has the moral compass improved? Has, has the crooked timber of humanity Um, you know, straightened a bit as a result of this moral plenty, not one jot.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I guess like that should be the one (laughs) jot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, when I always think of this, like thing I learned in high school is I, I don't even, of course, kind of cliche, but it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, you know, hopefully if we can get everyone to a point of like just material comfort, then we can start maybe actually diving into these other questions of spirit and soul and, um, you know, how are we going to, to exist as human beings? Well, but now, hold
1: on um, a second, though. Going, going back to the discussion that we began with, with Russian literature, right? Um, what, you know, the Russian literary figures and a lot of Russian literary scholars and Russian historians would tell you, some anyway, would, you know, absent, absent that suffering, <laughs> uh, you're doing nothing for that soul, my friend.
0: Yeah, no, I, 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 I mean, I that's, guess, that. that,
1: how is it, you know, how is it, how is it the soldier needs and is able to produce something like Gulag Archipelago? You know, the yeah, years no one else the could camp. have produced it unless you lived through it, right? He, the years he spent in the camps. How is it that Fyodor Dostoevsky can produce Brothers Jaramansov, but for his own experience of exile, his own experience of what we would recognize today as a form of torture? You know, because it was his uh, his role in a secret, you know, a, a secret society um, in the 1840s is what got him arrested, sent into exile, and at one point. Um, he was victim to uh, the practice of the pseudo-execution, right? He was, they put a bag over his head. They walked him out. He was going to be, they set up everything to make him think he was about to be executed. And then at the last minute, you know, they announced that his sentence had been commuted and it was going to be however many years of exile that he would spend, you know, and they, he ends up producing notes from the House of the Dead. Um, ha- from a, from a, And I don't want to be there. I don't want you to be there. I don't want anybody to be there. But you know, to, to you know, try and imagine yourself in that, in that situation, you've been sentenced to death. Your life is going to end in the next you know, few minutes, and then you're alive. You know, because the sentence has been commuted, and now you're laboring. That is, that's a life-altering experience. And there's a level there of spiritual suffering that also then you know, follows the physical and, and continued spiritual suffering that you're going to get um, in, in working in the labor camps, whether you're Dostoevsky, Solzhenitsyn, or the millions of others you know, who endured that, um, under the Soviet period, um, that's, you know, and that's one of the things, it's almost a cliche. It's, you know, the great suffering is what produces the great cultural works. Whereas what do you get in the United States? You get crap. Um, you know, Hollywood is great. Um, you know, but what are, where, where are America's great cultural works? They're certainly not works of, in my opinion, as a non-American, um, I'm an American, but you you said I'm saying I don't I'm not an American cultural literary specialist. You know, what are the great works of American culture there? there, There's great contributions. The United States has made to the world Uh, rock and roll, which comes from Delta Blues, the African-American community, jazz, African-American community, Mm -hmm. Um, Hollywood, cinema. There are no great American operas. We have musicals. If you like those types of things. I can't think of a single American novel that I would recommend over anything written by Russians. You know, at least the, the yeah, at least exactly. the well-established, you know, the 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 the, the, the standards: Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky. Uh, you know, but not a novelist, but Pushkin. You know, Russian literature is. You know, if you, you this is sort of like a beer and pretzels, you know, discussion or argument. Russian literature is just head and shoulders better. <laughs> Than anything American writers have ever produced. Hemingway's okay; he's fine. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, yeah, it's all right. Um, but they, they're not in the same league.
0: <laughs> just, yeah, <not>. just different <laughs> ballgames. Yeah, I, I, you'll yeah, get no and Russians, for me. <laughs> and it's not just
1: literature; it's opera, it's uh, symphonic music, ballet. I mean, Russian cultural productivity has just been staggering. You know, and no small part of that. Has to do out of the context in which these folks were working, you know, and a lot of it, even stuff that American and Canadian audiences maybe, if they're not, if they're not familiar with Russians, history, don't know as well or as much about. You even have, you know, 19th century artistic movements, the Peredvizhniki, uh, the, the the itinerants or the wanderers, Russian realist painters, who were writing in part out of a sense of na- or painting in part out of a, na- a sense of national pride in rejection to the Western European motifs that were being imposed upon them by the Russian Academy of Arts at the time. You know, they, they loved their country, but at the same time they were willing to critique it, and critique it they did, you know, in paintings that were absolutely, for, for the time, um, revolutionary, in drawing attention to, you know, this, the, the, the degradation of the peasants, the hypocrisy and the venality of official culture, uh, the cruelty of daily life. Um, in, in the country, so you end up with, you know, again, so we go to the suffering, the, the the hard times, the difficult circumstances, producing this artistic, or not producing directly, but contributing to a, a cultural and artistic pro, uh, level of productivity that's uh, that's almost unsurpassed uh, in in world history. It's fantastic stuff.
0: So. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm genuinely curious whether you know we have these these individuals who. Um, you know, benefit is, benefited is a strange word to use. Like Dostoevsky didn't, let's say, benefit from going to the living in exile, but he, you know, he was able to produce such a, an incredible work. Um, because, you know, his soul, his, his being his his whatever, whatever you want to put, his spirit has been enriched by this experience of great suffering.
1: Um, well, I would, I, I would, I, I'm not sure I would agree entirely with that. I think you can say, and some of them have. I think Solzhenitsyn, I'd have to go back and search, you know, for the, for the quote or go back and look at one of the couple of biographies I've read of him, you know, dating years back. Um, Solzhenitsyn would have admitted, Dostoevsky maybe as well, that while the suffering was great from a spiritual standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, they were in a better position because of the suffering. They were able to, they were able to slough off. You know, those, 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 those concerns that, that detracted them away from what is really important and what was, it centers the, that experience of suffering centers the person, right? It, it forces you to find the inner strength within yourself. And we have, we have many, many stories. Some of them, you, you get some of these as well with those who survived, uh, the German death camps. Although again, the situation there is different. You know, because folks were being sent, folk, those the extermination camps were designed simply to eliminate human beings. The effect of the gulag could have, in some instances, was comparable. You know, you were effectively working people to death under the, uh, the the ration system that was created, and which, by the way, influenced the Germans. That's one of the things. As an aside, here two two things that that a lot of folks don't understand: the language. That the Nazis used regarding the Jews, vermin, lice, filth, that sort of thing, that this, this idea of characterizing them as being subhuman or non-human, that actually came from the Bolsheviks. That rhetoric was in, that rhetoric was influenced by what Lenin in particular was saying about his political opponents. They were bedbugs. They were lice. They were fleas. They needed to be exterminated like vermin. Now yeah. Lenin wasn't applying that to Jews; he was applying it to socialist revolutionaries, constitutional democrats kulaks members of i mean anyone who was a political opponent the nazis focus on jews and and, and, and uh, Roma or gypsies uh the the uh, the physically disabled and things like that you know the the, the nazis the the, the rhetoric there's a direct tie between the Bolshevik rhetoric and Nazi rhetoric. There's a direct tie between the way in which some of the German camps were run and what the Bolsheviks had established um, in 1918, 1919 at Solovki, um, and then uh, under the system established by Naftali Frankel, fascinating figure in Soviet history, where they established the work, the rations based upon the amount of work that a person could produce in the camps. And what it ended up doing was you would work harder to get the greater ration. But the greater ration was not enough to offset the the uh, additional caloric loss right you had a caloric, caloric deficit then right, yeah. so you ended with a caloric deficit, so the harder you worked, the more you ate, the worse shape you were in Now, i 'm not sure how I got off on this aside, but you know the, the, because we it's it 's always problematic when you 're talking about the, the Nazi camps versus the Soviet camps in part because what was unique about the Nazi camps is they were some of them Auschwitz-Birkenau were designed specifically as extermination camps. That was different, um, although the you know, the scale and the scope in the Soviet Union was was far greater, in terms of the number, the extent, their duration. You know they last all the way up until the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, some of them have just been converted into now prison camps. You know, but the the the, uh, the framework is there still in the in, in, in the post-Soviet uh, prison system. A lot of these camps were held over from the thirties and forties built under Stalin. You know, Auschwitz is a tourist attraction.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think that the general takeaway is, you know, w- we do point to Auschwitz and we you know we're like, okay, here's, here's one of the most terrible instances of human history. And, you know, we should we we ought to remember that there are other instances that maybe aren't uh, at hundred percent of what Auschwitz is, but they're at ninety five percent and we're, or eighty well, percent whatever. I would, like,
1: yeah, I don't know if I would. And again, it's a problem. I, I do it sometimes as well. You don't want to, you know. Well, let's weigh let's weigh the Jewish experience in Nazi Germany versus, you know. But if you think about it here, and this is one of the way, and I we I do talk we we do talk about this. When we teach the Stalin class as a way of trying to help people understand the nature of terror. Um, living under a tyrannical terroristic regime, which is what Stalin's regime was. If you were in, if you were in Hitler's Germany in 1934, 1937, 1938, if you were not Jewish, if you were not Roma, gypsy, um, if you were not physically handicapped or, or disabled and you were not politically active, what were the odds of you being arrested by the SS and sent to a camp? Zero. Vir- virtually Zero. none. Virtually none. You would go through the motions, you Heil Hitler and all this sort of crap. You know, if you when you had to do when you had to perform, you would perform, but otherwise you would be left alone. In the Soviet Union under Stalin in 1933, 34, especially 37, 38, who could who could who could be rounded up by the organs? who could be targeted who was targeted any. any and everyone any and everyone that's the difference you have a you have a a, a a horrific authoritarian regime under the nazis where you had clearly defined quote unquote enemies under stalin everyone was a potential enemy everyone was and this is the thing, you had mentioned, you know, had mentioned Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, and one of the things that he talks about in, in the trilogy are the waves that that flow through the system. And He you know, he likens it to a sewage system. This is the regime getting rid of its feces, its human feces, its human waste. And he talks about the waves, where 1918, 1919, shortly after the establishment, the formal establishment of these new uh, political prisons, you get... The SRs, the socialist revolutionaries, the Kadats, the constitutional Democrats. So these would be the holdover parties from Tsarism, along with priests, uh, members of the former Tsarist administration, um, and the former people, you know, bourgeois bankers and things like that. They're the first wave. Then you have a second wave, and that second wave you know, may have been uh, folks rounded up uh, during the Civil War, especially kulaks. When expropriation of grain was taking place, and they're going to be a company now because the state is emphasizing uh, the arrest of, um, let's say, the the arrests of of, of held over scientific managers from the czarist era, and what they're doing, and we we know this now. Solzhenitsyn talked about it, and and I'm sorry, but there were a lot of Soviet historians in the 80s and 90s who denied this. To deny that what Solzhenitsyn was writing about could possibly be true. It was more fiction than it was real. We know for a fact, because we've got the archival documents now, that they were establishing quotas for the arrests. Right? Lenin sends out a telegram, send me a hundred, or you know, not send me, arrest one hundred of the best known kulaks and bourgeois specialists and opponents of the Soviet state and shoot them summarily as examples. Stalin inherits the system. Stalin didn't create the system. He inherits it from Lenin. Now, he expands upon it, and he grows it. But eventually, it's going to engulf every conceivable socioeconomic level, and of course, during the Great the Great Terror, 37, 38, who, who's being targeted, but the highest ranking members of the party apparatus themselves.
0: Yeah. Um. <laughs> I, I, I don't have much to say to that, other than to bring it back to how I first found your YouTube channel uh, was with this speech from Stalin, and obviously this is his last speech, and it, you know he, he's done after this. But even during that speech, the thing that stuck with me the most was he he might say ten words, and then the entire building erupts in in everyone clapping and cheering, and no one wants to stop. It's just clapping and clapping and clapping endlessly. And it's the same feeling like any one person who doesn't clap long enough in that uh, uh, amphitheater is, it could could face the risk of death, right, or whatever. And I guess that that just kind of permeated every aspect of Soviet life at the time.
1: Yeah, and it, it was, what's, what's sort of what's remarkable and also unremarkable about that comment that you just made Right. Is that there's a vignette in Solzhenitsyn's Golag archipelago that says exactly that. It's the old Moscow fact, uh, Moscow regional chief. I I don't, we talk about it in the Stalin class. I don't have it here, um, uh, in within reach. See if I can do this from memory. Uh, A local Moscow factory meeting, a local Moscow party meeting. The new uh, regional secretary who's been uh, appointed by the party is on stage. He's just replaced someone. Who was accused of sabotage and wrecking and summarily executed, and he's up on the stage giving a speech, and Stalin's name is mentioned, and 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 everybody, Solzhenitsyn tells us in this vignette, begins clapping, and clapping, and they rise to stand, and they clap and they clap and they clap for a minute, for two minutes, and the people on the stage start looking at each other. And they're looking at each other, and they're still clapping, and they're still clapping. And two minutes turns to three minutes. Three minutes turns to four minutes. Four minutes turns to five minutes. And everybody's clapping as hard as they can. And people in the back are, you know, older people, and tells us in the room, are getting tired, and they're, they're starting to get to fatigue, they're starting to sweat. But they all know that within that room, there are elements of the organs, the secret police, and they're watching, and they're clapping too, but they're also looking. And this goes on, Solzhenitsyn tells us, for 10, 11 minutes, when finally, without any notice, the party chief suddenly sits down and stops clapping, and everybody just drops exhausted. Wow. Oh. That night, the vignette continues, that night, the local party chief was arrested. And he was interrogated. And as he signed his confession, was told by his interrogator, Never be the first to stop clapping.
0: <sighs> wow. Now, I mean, we, we get done. I can, I, can,
1: I can find you the page number and all the rest of that. that that's straight yeah, out of the and Archipelago. Wow. Now, did this happen? Um, what you just say, oh, the Stalin video, you're right. They're all doing that. I'm inclined to believe that Solzhenitsyn's vignette is far closer to the truth than
0: it is to fiction yeah right I'd be, really I'd, be, I'd,
1: I'd be shocked if it didn't happen
0: yeah, yeah and, and, and this is what the speech takes place in 1952 <laughs> right so like imagine a few decades earlier it's only going to be more pronounced um okay i want to be now mindful of your time sure. um how are you doing i think um I maybe have one more question when it comes to just the overall practice of history, and then I want to talk about Spoke spoke Network, and then let's wrap it up. Um, So I never get to talk to someone who actually uh, understands history. And as a history professor, I, I took some courses kind of casually in university, but I'm very much just an enthusiast. And so how I get most of my interesting history content these days is through Dan Carlin, um, he has these like podcasts on a bunch of different historical events, and one of the things that he will occasionally talk about to kind of qualify or set up um, some of his podcasts is he'll talk about these kind of two pillars or these kind of two general approaches to history, which is you know on the one side you have you know trends and forces, what's kind of happening and ebbing and flowing through the society and the times and the culture and what technologies are happening. And then you have the kind of great man theory on the flip side where you have you know like in order for historical change to really happen, like a great man you know man or woman man in the kind of broader sense, like they come along and they are a catalyst for change, like they are the ones like marching history forward through their own human willpower and brute force, and I guess you know I, I, of course the answer is both um but you know. I guess we have the tendency to look back in history, and because there's so much, we have to consolidate and distill things into singular people, um, and that makes perfect sense to me. But also, you know, I'm curious about like, but are these people actually great men? Like, are these great men and women? Like, is do the is their greatness a real thing? We should be. Thinking about it and how do we use this term greatness? Cause it's obviously not just things that we like, you know, right. greatness doesn't necessarily indicate any sort of moral compass here. Like, no, can not. you talk about this a little bit to me?
1: Sure. That, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. This is, you know, if, you know, anyone who's watching the podcast when we're done, you don't edit this part out, but this part okay, is going to get me in trouble. Okay. In the Stalin class every semester, we've been, I've been teaching this class, co-teaching with a, uh, with a colleague of mine since about 20, 13, 10, seven or eight times, okay. every, every fall semester. And I, I say the very first day of class, and I mean it. Joseph Stalin is the greatest figure of the 20th century. It's not even close. He is the greatest figure of the 20th century. But you ask the question that I follow up with, what do you mean by great? Do you mean somebody that I would aspire to be like? No. Somebody that I would want uh, in charge of my country or my local PTA? No. By great, I mean consequential. Consequential for good and for ill. So you can have a figure. I mean, in, in that regard, you know, unfortunately, Hitler was consequential. Hitler was yeah, consequential.
0: It, Napoleon, so, whatever. Like
1: Napoleon was absolutely consequential. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, you can have somebody with FDR. Yeah, he was consequential, um, but you know, no, none of these none of these uh, characters rise to the level, I believe, uh, of Stalin. Especially when you look at the trajectory of his life, where he came from, where he ended up, and what he did along the way. It is absolutely one of the greatest, i.e., most consequential stories of the 20th century, possibly of all time. Um, you know, there's an argument to be made. That Joseph Stalin is the most consequential of any of Russia's or Eurasia's rulers, um, you know, up to and maybe even including Peter the Great. Maybe, maybe I'm not, the imperial historian in me. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. stick with Peter. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, if you mean, if, if by great you mean consequential, I would agree, yes, there are great men and great women in history. There's no doubt about it. But in order to understand why they were consequential, you have to understand where they came from and the context in which they were operating. And if you do that, you come to understand, to get back to your question, that, well, they're not just acting because you know it is Stalin. Well, where does Stalin come from? He's a product of empire. He's a product of um, a peripheral holding on the edge of empire that took 47 years for the imperial state to quash, you know, in the caucuses. He was a minority. He, we, he was Georgian, but he was Mingrillian, which was, you know, it's not exactly the same. And he went to seminary. So when you have to understand those personal contexts and within that, how that person evolved out mm-hmm. of those larger contexts to, to understand how and why it was possible for them to become consequential. So, I that I, I that's you know a typical scholarly response that sort of hedges you know your 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 question. Um but yeah there 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 are consequential people, no doubt about it. And we, and by, or there are great people. Um, if if by great you mean consequential, and Solomon was one of them.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think you've totally hit on it. Like when we when we use this word great historically, like where there's no sorts of You know, hey, we like this person. It's not about that. Um, It's about something completely. No, but but here's the thing. I'll
1: say as I'll say as well. I mean, even somebody like Stalin, you study Stalin, and you you, there are things that he did that, within the context in which he were operating, were extremely smart, extremely clever, and you you can learn from that. Uh, You, I mean, that's, that's you don't want to be Stalin. You don't want to be like Stalin um you know but his you know his ability to manipulate and build a bureaucratic apparatus was was quite impressive especially for somebody who didn't have any experience and is all of a sudden thrust into the role of commissar of nationalities and then from there you know thrust into the role of uh, of, of of general secretary and is is struggling to build a bureaucratic uh apparatus effectively from scratch And he was able to do it by delegating authority, focusing on the most important question, not getting too um, uh, uh, tied up in detail, not being a micromanager. Frankly, um, as as odd as it's going to sound, um, if you're in administration and you're you're, you're struggling with trying to to, to deal with an unwieldy bureaucracy and, and adopt principles for how to function, you could do a lot worse than study Stalin's career path.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean he had to have gotten through this incredible journey through some sorts of uh intellect and you know ability, oh, yeah. right? And, and the application
1: um, of certain kinds of principles, like for example, this is one of the things that kills administrators. I mean I mean metaphorically it ruins their careers, micromanagement. Micromanagers make terrible uh executives. Terrible executives. Because they wanna they want to get down to the minutiae and everything gets screwed up. That's not your job. You know, your job is to make decisions, and that's what, that's what an executive does. You execute. Now, in Stalin's case, he took <laughs> that a little bit further than you're supposed to. You want to execute orders. You don't want to execute your subordinates. Well, he, was, he was an executive of a different type. But, I mean, from the standpoint of how he was able to build a bureaucratic apparatus and then to make it function with an extraordinary chaotic situation, it's, it's admirable, frankly. But you've, got, yeah, to, you've no. got to be able to separate all of that from the really awful, horrifically tyrannical things that he did. Because he really was a bad person.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, but uh, you know, also when you examine a human being, you have to examine all facets of them. That goes
1: back to Solzhenitsyn, though, right? You know, who, who famously writes that you know the line dividing good and evil is drawn to the heart of every man or woman. It goes right down
0: the middle of the heart of every man or woman. Um, I I will always remember that, you know? Um, So, okay, I think that's a great answer. Um, I think just uh, to close, I want to talk a little bit about the Spoke Network. I want to just um, maybe talk to the listeners for a moment here. And um, I'm going to put the the links in the the bio of the podcast. um, And, you know, I'll kind of just give my cliff notes of, the smoke network and I'll hand it over to you. Like, you know, you talked a few times about copyright issues on Google. Um, and you know, but you know, beyond that, you are someone who really does value providing online education to people who are like me, they're 20 and they're estranged in the city with, you know, i am done university, but I still want to mm-hmm. keep learning. And there's so obviously a big audience of people out there who feel the same way, who want to have high quality university level um, uh, content delivered to them in some sort of accessible way. And, uh, you know, the Spoke Network acts as a kind of platform to open that door for people like me. So um, maybe you could tell me a little bit more about your idea behind it and what yeah. you, you know, your kind of your best case scenario, what does this turn
1: into? Sure. Well, let me let me, let me roll back just a second to give folks, you know, and you a little bit of background information um, as, as to how even those Imperial Russian lectures ended up on YouTube, right, which is how we met. Mm-hmm. Um, back um, um, earlier in my academic career, um, like any faculty member at a, at a regional university or a major university, you know, there's, there was a drive in the, uh, the 1990s to the 2000s to put more and more information online. Uh, to deliver content through content management systems, a, a WebCT, Blackboard, one of the ones now is Canvas. Some people may know Sakai. And what these are is they are uh, they're they're private, corporate-owned, big business enterprises that provide platforms for the delivery of content. You post your syllabus, you post some links. You know, um, here's here's a here's a, here are collections of PowerPoints that I've uploaded to the website. Well, when I was at my previous institution, we reached a point where I had put together my flight culture class on one of these content management systems or a CMS. And that was it was perfect. It was exactly what I wanted. It was icon driven. It was visually directed. I, I do a lot of cultural history as we've talked about. So I think that the medium is an important part of the message how it looks it needs to be it needs to be attractive it needs to draw people in especially when you're dealing with with so much visual culture as I do i want things to look nice to be inviting for students and what happened was that the institution was going to move from one content management platform one cms to another one and so i went to talk to the, the it people and i said well under the new system can my class my flight culture class is it going to look the same way no all the, all the visuals were going to disappear. And it was going to be basically a bullet list where you just go one down, you check off things. And I said, well, that, that's stupid. Why do I want to do that? You know, I, I've taken this thing that I've created within this content management system that I don't control, and I thought, well, I've designed websites. I'll just do it myself. So what I ended up doing was I created, you know, ScottWPalmer.com, and I gave it this silly little name, Scott Palmer's Online Knowledge Emporium. Spoke. I just I needed some. I needed something, and that was as good as anything else. And I decided that I would move everything off of the university servers and put it on basically my own platform that was at scottwpalmer.com. And I would all of the students who enrolled in any class I took, I would create a separate standalone website for that class. And in a way, it's it's intuitive, or at least it was for me because I had had some experience, a little bit of experience with design and website development. And I thought, well, look. I teach the airplane class one semester. How much of it is rewritten the next time I teach it? Well, it's not completely rewritten, right? I'd have my notes on my computer, but what I'll do is I'll basically just put all of my content online and make it available to students. So the syllabus is there, the reading list is there. Here are some links to other websites. And I started doing that um, so that you know, uh, students. Every single web, every single class has its own dedicated website. It's themed a certain way so that the the, the medium the website becomes part of the overall message. Um, and it was at, in response to that that I decided, well, let me go ahead and put some lectures online, put them on YouTube. Uploaded the Imperial Russian lectures um, in about 2015, and like I said, I more or less forgot about them. I didn't do much with them. And all of a sudden I went back and, oh, I've got you know 500 subscribers. Okay, whatever. I've got 1,000 subscribers. Uh, I'm up now, I think, to somewhere over 5,000. Which, and, and over 2 million or close to 2 million views, most of that being driven by the Stalin stuff. And that's without even trying. I, you know, so I, I yeah. my, my, my thought is, well, there, there must be a demand out there for this sort of thing. So what I, what I'm, what I'm taking to doing now is to get back to your question about the spoke network. There are, there are issues that some content creators encounter with the big corporate tech. Companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter and things like that. Who owns the content that is on that platform? If you're on Facebook, as part of the terms of service, anything you put on Facebook, your Facebook page, Facebook owns. That's part of the terms of service. They own that. And of course, Google wants to monetize any and everything that you put on the website. You know, the, a couple of years back, they changed their monetization uh, uh, formula. And folks who were making, you know, $8,000, dollars 10000 a month saw that collapse because Google's got to scoop up more and more of this. And you're dealing with their copyright laws, their censorship, and things along those lines. Um, so what I've, what, you know, what I've since decided to do, and it's been relatively recently, is I'm going to start moving additional materials onto a brand new platform. It's called uh, spoke-network.org, and it's part of uh, what I'm calling the Spoke Educational Network. Is that the greatest name? It's not, but I wanted to, I wanted to keep that association with Scott Palmer's online knowledge emporium because it's a bit squirrely. What I've done is I've set up a 501c3 nonprofit. So I am legitimately a non an educational nonprofit institution. Um, within the last month or so, we received news from the uh, American IRS that we are now a recognized public charity. So. I want to continue offering free content, but these things don't pay for themselves, right? If you're offering free content, you have to have some way of paying for the domain, paying for the registration, paying for the server space, paying for the subscriptions you need for the underlying software, whether it's themes for your website, whether it's, you know, learning modules and things like that, or a Vimeo subscription, uh, to host your, um, to host your videos. But as a 501c3, You know, we can now collect tax deductible donations. So what I, what I'm aiming to do, the first class that's going to be fully available on the new network is, is the history of flight culture course in no small part because I have everything. I've got all the, I've got lecture, all the audio lectures. Um, I'm working uh, to develop um, a production quality that is going to be superior to that that you get in the Imperial Russian uh, lectures that are on YouTube. So if you're interested in aviation, go watch the lectures. What I want to add to this, though, is I want to add to, add, add more of a university type experience. So that once, when the flight culture course is entirely available, you'll have self-check exams and exercises that you can do, sort of self-assessments to test yourself. Did I really learn it? Did I really comprehend it? We can, you'll have a midterm exam and a final exam. The idea here is to make this a, a self-contained university course experience. That gives you everything that you would have online that you would get in a university level course, except the one thing I can't give you, which is transferable credit, right, to apply to a community college or to a university. Although that's the sort of thing that I think down the road, uh, as uh, the situation in higher education shakes out, may well be possible. So um, flight culture is the first one up. Um, I'm working on that now, hopefully to have everything up and running by the first of the year, then I will probably turn to the Stalin class because that gives the folks who had the Imperial Russian experience something to return to because it, it does sort of pick up where Imperial Russia leaves off. Um, and then the one I'm working towards developing that I, I'm looking forward to, I um, mean, I'm waiting for last, um, is History of Video Games, which is a class I've developed in about the last uh, five or six years. Taught it uh, twice here in my current appointment to – um Safe to say, extremely enthusiastic um, uh, response from students. Um, it's, it's a great class, and what it does is it's it's not uh, trivia. You know, it's not you know when when did Bowser first introduce the Mario world as, <laughs> as, as, as an enemy? That's that's not, not trivia. It it approaches video games the way I approach airplanes in the history of flight culture course uh, as a technology through I mean you can it will trace the evolution of the technology. And it's socio-cultural impact, but at the same time, we look at the way in which society, politics, and above all, the military uh, has influenced the development of video gaming. So it's a lot of fun. And so the, the, the new, the new home for all of this is the Spoke Educational uh, uh, Foundation or spoke-network.org. Not a lot to see there just yet. Um, but I'll be, I'm working on that as I'm developing the flight culture course. That's where, uh, it's going to be housed. So I'll use the, uh, the, the YouTube channel, hopefully to direct some subscribers over there. Go watch them because under the auspices, and this is why the, the 501c3 is so important. You have protections, uh, to utilize under fair use, copyrighted materials for nonprofit purposes, if that makes sense. Non Nonpro- educational nonprofit. Yeah.
0: Uh, I think it sounds fascinating. I think that. Uh, I personally need no convincing that this is what people are hungry for and what people are looking for anyways. Um, and you know, the the credential is the least important part of all of it because I am assuming most people are like me where they're, they've already got their university degree or maybe they've already, they're a working adult and they're not looking to go back to college. Like, um, they really just want to learn for the sake of learning's sake,
1: and there's, there's an, I think there's another audience out there and it's not just, you know, 20 somethings and 30 somethings. You also have, you know, a very large, uh, population of retirees or near retirees who are looking to sort of stay active. Um, you know, they want to learn more about a subject, you know, because they were a successful businessman or a successful businesswoman. They spent all their time building a, uh, building their, their private business. Um, and now they're in a comfortable retirement. They want something more. Those folks as well, I think. Uh, are, are interested in these types of things. And what, I, what I'm hoping to do down the road is use the network as a platform so it's not just me. Right? I'd like to have philosophers. I'd like to have political scientists. I'd like to have other historians who have, you have to have some degree of, uh, some degree of uh, technical chops. But if you can record your lectures and if you're looking for a platform to put them there, to ha- to house them, without having to pay for your own domain name, without having to register your own domain, pay for the server and go through all of the process that I've already completed, well, come on by, you know, you know, shoot me a note. Um, I can create just as quickly for someone else, a website for a class as I can create one for myself. And then they keep, and the other thing I'm, I'm very uh, keen about is intellectual property. I'm not asking for anybody's intellectual property. If, if someone wants to bring in a course on, uh on uh, epistemology bringing a course on epistemology I don't want that content but if you want to if you need a platform for reaching an audience and don't want to have to go through this entire process I've got one
0: yeah i i mean the whole thing is very exciting um and you know whenever you build something that's a that's a win for both sides the people who are engaging and learning from the content but also it's a win for the people who want to provide the content as well then like that's a recipe for success as far as I'm concerned. So um, it makes me very excited. Uh, I think, you know, even for anyone listening who enjoyed the conversation, you don't even have to wait. You can go online right now and you can watch the Imperial Russian uh, lectures on YouTube. Um, you also have a bunch of other kind of uh, cool videos on there, like the Stalin one and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so there's plenty of content to enjoy today. And, you know, lots of stuff in the pipeline, lots of stuff in the future as well. And so, um, yeah, it makes me really excited. And I think, um, it's probably, you know, a great place for me here to just thank you in general. Yeah. Thank well, you one, for,
1: let, let me, let me, let me, one thing I probably should say just as a point of clarification, because there, there are, there are places you can go now on YouTube, TEDx and think, TED Talks and things like that. What I think is different about the network that, that I'm trying to build is I want to bring in scholars. Yeah. I want to bring in academics. Mm -hmm. I want to bring in people who've been teaching for some time, who are experts in their field and who are looking for a way of communicating to an audience that is much larger than the 20, 25, 30 students they may be able to put into a class in a given semester. That's where I think, you know, the intertubes um, have such a great place and and can be a, a really great tool for expanding university level content without the expense of having to pay for a university diploma? Is there a difference between getting a degree and receiving an education? You can receive an education on your own, frankly. You can't get a degree without paying the you know paying the, the entry price. Um, and there are folks who can get a degree and an education. There are some folks who leave college not knowing anything, but they have a degree in their hand. Um, but by having, having something like this gives them, a, you know, an outlet and gives them access to information and an interpretation as a historian, I tell stories, um, that I'm more, more than happy to engage with them on, you know, we'll try and personalize some of these things. I have some ideas in mind for actually running classes. I've got to, you know, everything has to be copacetic with my, with my current employer. Um, but you know, down the road at some point when my own personal circumstances change, you're you know, running, running discussions. Uh, with folks who are interested in Russian history who are looking for what should I be reading? What have you been reading? What do you think about this or that? Um, this is this is a, a great platform, I think, for doing that in a way that TED Talks or, or uh, um, Udacity and things like that don't. Sorry about yeah, that. I yeah, stepped yeah. on your no,
0: toes. No, no problem. I think that's actually the most important thing to get across here is exactly what it is. It's not trying to ape, you know, a kind of a Vox video or a Ted, a Ted ed, this is an actual kind of remote virtual experience of what it would be like to actually be in the classroom, listening to the professor, um, doing the readings, um, and yeah, like doing even some self-evaluation as well. So, um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Aside from that, I really just wanted to thank you for obviously this entire endeavor of, um, you know, providing education to the people like that is, really, really noble, but also, you know, thank you for your time talking to me. Uh, this has been a ton of fun. Yeah, I'm so happy that I was too. able to do this. Like, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's such a rare thing to be able to nerd out about something like this <laughs> um, uh, with someone a few thousand miles away. And, and it was just, it was a lot of fun. So I hope no, I, I uh, wasn't I thoroughly too much enjoyed it.
1: And like I said, as soon as I get this, uh, the next flight culture lecture ready, hopefully by Monday, um, I'll send you along the link. Uh, you, can, you can critique it. And let me know what you think.
0: I love it. Um, well, I just want to thank everyone for also listening to the Jack's Collective. Uh, this was Professor Scott Palmer.